0: Well, good morning again, FVC family. Um, so good to be back with you after a bit of a break. I think it's been a month. Um, I was counting the days, like I was in prison, like knocking them off. I, uh, I miss this place dearly. Uh, I missed you all so much. Uh, I also want to say welcome back again to those of you uh, who have been in Korea, but were traveling this summer, and now you're back. And of course, those of you who are new with us again today, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, you know, here at Freedom Village, uh, the goal is really simple. Uh, We want to glorify God and make disciples of the nations. That's it. Uh, We want to glorify God and make disciples of the nations. We believe that that's uh, the mission of God's church, uh, not just the lowercase c, like local church, but of his church, to glorify him, to make him known, to make disciples of the nations. Uh, Here, we want to see people not just attend church, but actually be the church. Uh, We want to see people be empowered by the Holy Spirit, We wanna see people be centered on the gospel. That means centering their lives on Jesus and his good news. And we wanna see people living their lives on mission. This is who we want to be as a church. And as I was uh, thinking about that this summer, uh, God so graciously brought my mind and my heart to this church that we just read about in Antioch. Uh, This beautiful church that we see in the scriptures which serves as a model and an example of who I pray that we would be as a gathering. Uh, you see, Antioch is truly an inspiring gathering because it was pivotal uh, in the early church for the spread of the gospel. And what I hope to show us today through this message is that Antioch is a church worth modeling. It's a church worth considering. It's a church worth uh, aiming to be. Uh, Typically here at FEC, we pick a book of the Bible um, and just work through it verse by verse. If you've been here, of course, you know that. If you haven't been here and you're new, you probably know that from YouTube. You probably, you know, scouted us out. Um, But that's what we do. We are currently going through the book of John, and we'll start that again uh, next week. But today, because it's the start of a new season for us, and because so many of us are just returning, including myself, I wanted to begin uh, this season with a bit of a with a bit of vision, if you will, uh, and with a reminder of what we are going after here uh, as a church in Seoul. So let's open our Bibles now together. If you haven't already done that, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be looking at this gathering at Antioch, this sending, well taught. Diverse praying church. This church that would become the launching pad for worldwide missions. In fact, um, Antioch had so much influence, it was so impactful in that day. The gospel spread there so rapidly that the city, that the city, the surrounding city actually came up with a new term for these people. Non-believers of Jesus called these people Christians. For the very first time, little Christs. Uh, That first happened in this city. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, says, You want to know what a Christian is? Maybe you've been asked that question before. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does a Christian look like? Look at Antioch. Um, So here's my question for us this morning as we dive in What made this church in Antioch? uh, What were the characteristics of it that led them to be called Christians in the first place? Uh, Why was it so powerful? Why was it so impactful? Why was it so influential? And the characteristics they have, um, are they modeled here in us and through us? Because what they had back then in the Roman Empire, I want here in Seoul. I was begging God for this, uh, this summer actually. Um, I want Freedom Village to be a place where people are impacted by the love of Christ and the good news of his gospel. I want this gathering to be a place of influence in our city. A a, a place where the lost around us actually know that we exist. That they actually know we're here and see that we are visibly different. So what was it about Antioch? What were the ingredients of that church that made them so impactful? I want to give you five of them. Okay, five of them. Starting in verse 19. Five ingredients that lead to impact and influence within the local church, in us and through us starting with number one, effective evangelism. Effective evangelism. What we find is that this church, again, had so much impact, we're gonna see this, through their evangelism efforts. In fact, the church here we see was birthed out of people sharing the gospel. I love that, right? We take this for granted. This is actually ideal, right? That you go into a place, you go into a neighborhood, you go into a city, you go into a nation, you plant seeds of the gospel, People receive that gospel, and then you establish a local gathering of believers there. That's what happened in Antioch. Look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. If you don't know the story, you're not familiar with the scriptures, a few chapters before this, in Acts chapter 6, There's a man named Stephen. We hear a little bit about his story, and we know that Stephen actually dies for his belief in Jesus. He is stoned to death. He's killed for sharing the gospel. But then, with that, it starts this spread of persecution, like massive spread of Christians throughout Jerusalem, causing Christians in that city to scatter, to to flee. And we see here where they fled. The author tells us they fled to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. The apostles, we know, it's really interesting. The apostles, the leaders of the church at that day, they actually stay in Jerusalem. They stay at that local gathering, within that local church. But most of the rest of the church leaves. And we are told that when they did that, and when they arrived in these different cities that they went to, Acts chapter 8 tells us that those who were being persecuted went about preaching the word. That's what it says verse by verse. That those who were being persecuted, those who scattered, went about preaching the word. So these Jewish believers who had to flee their home city of Jerusalem are now in these other cities sharing the gospel to their brothers and sisters. To other Jews. Only to Jews. For now. But others, look at verse 20 in our main text, we see it here. But there were others of them, or some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So we see that it's here in Antioch where non-Jews are beginning to hear the gospel for the very first time. That's what we're told here in the text. For the first time... Large groups of foreigners, non-Jews, are listening about Jesus and what happened to Jesus, what he did, what he said, how he overcame the grave. Now, there's a, a lot to be said here, but one of the first things that really strikes me about this passage is that these disciples, let's call them evangelists, right? these followers of the way, are not named. We actually don't know any of their names. They are unnamed individuals. And that, to me, is a great encouragement and should be a great encouragement to you, that you don't need to be a celebrity Christian to make an impact in the world. You don't have to have a famous podcast. You don't have to have a ton of followers on YouTube. You don't have to be Insta-famous even to turn the world upside down for the gospel. You are known by Jesus, and that's enough, amen? These are just faithful individuals who went about spreading the gospel in their various networks and neighborhoods. They were just living their lives, but as they were living their lives, they were also sharing and showing others the good news of Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, is how the gospel spreads to the end of the earth. It, it's how it is spread, spreading to the very ends of the earth. As one church historian, historian put it, he said this, the primary change agents in the spread of the faith in the early church were men and women who earned their livelihood in some secular manner and spoke their faith to whom they met in this natural fashion. Listen, that's how the world was turned upside down. And I believe the same is still true today. It's through people like you here who just choose to live their lives with intentionality. People who are willing to share their life And share their faith in the very normal, mundane, everyday rhythms of life. But of course, to do this, we have to embrace our missionary identity. You have to do that if you're going to buy into this. We have to know who we are, or whose we are, and actually act upon who we are and what we're called to do and who we're called to be. And that's why we talk about this so much here. right? Because it's so easy to forget. We need to be reminded often, right, regularly, that actually to be a Christian is to be a missionary. Right? To be Christian is to be a missionary. It, missionaries aren't special. right? That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't matter if this is not your home country uh, and you're just, you're just serving the Lord here. But wherever you are, wherever God has you, it could be in your hometown, your home city, you are a missionary. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Why do you think this group of people here in Antioch were given the name Christian in the first place? Because as the world observed them, as the world looked upon them, they saw that they were living their lives like Jesus Christ. It was, it's very simple, actually. They were living like Jesus and living out the mission of Jesus, which, of course, always includes sharing your faith every single time. So likewise, let's see our neighborhoods. Let's see our networks. Let's see our schools as God-ordained appointments and placements of God putting people in our path. And let's not just talk about how we need to tell them about Jesus. Let's actually tell people about Jesus. I could say a lot more about that. I'm gonna stop. (laughs) The second ingredient we see in Antioch That helped them to being so impactful was their dynamic discipleship. Number two, their dynamic discipleship. This church began through evangelism, but it continued in discipleship. You need both. You see that in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, everything that was happening in Antioch. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It's really interesting here, uh, we start to see some system and structure within the early church uh, right from the beginning. So we see here some accountability, if you will, some spiritual oversight taking place. The church in Jerusalem, in other words, gets word about what's happening, this rapid spread of the gospel. They hear about what's going on, the leadership there, and so they make a strategic decision to send somebody to check in on this movement, to make sure that it was okay. And so they send the right guy for sure, right? And that person is Barnabas, whose nickname was the encourager. And certainly he was that. We know that Barnabas was extremely generous. We know that he personally invested in the Apostle Paul. We know that he cared for Mark when others would not. Uh, We know uh, here in Acts chapter 11 that he was a good man and we're told that he was both full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And here now, this man Barnabas enters into this city, goes into this church. And perhaps one of the reasons for that, not just because of his spiritual maturity, not just because he was ready, I think that's included, but also because Barnabas was from Cyprus himself. And so he's going back to his own people. Right, there's some strategy that takes place there because he could relate to this people group. And it says in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. There's just something about that verse uh, that I really love. I actually spent almost a week and a half just kind of meditating on that verse this summer. I didn't have anything else to do <laughs> um, because I was just thinking about it how how grace the grace of God should make our hearts glad right and how, how oftentimes it does not right we are we are given grace by God every single day right there are moments of grace in every moment of, of your life and yet so often our hearts are not glad but Barnabas comes into this place sees the grace of God And the author, Luke, tells us, wants us to know he was glad. Barnabas, in other words, was not this, like, religious leader who's like a stick in the mud, right? He's not narrow-minded. He's not upset, take note, that another church is exploding with the gospel, is growing, right? Barnabas is all about the kingdom, and he sees God's grace happening amongst these people. He sees transformation at hand, and he's glad, And, you know, I truly believe that Barnabas is or was so pivotal to this movement that takes place in Antioch because he was really setting the tone for them in helping to create what I would say was a gospel culture. Because, listen, we see in the text that he taught them to remain faithful. That's important. We're going to see that in a second. He reminded them of their purpose he put the gospel in the center of all that he did and all that he said. But also, listen now, he didn't just teach them gospel doctrine. He actually showed them gospel culture. You can't miss that. He was with them, speaking life into them, providing for them life-giving encouragement. And certainly we need to have that here among us as well. And how do I know that? How do I know here at Freedom Village that we need gospel encouragement regularly. Why? Because in the 13 years that I've spent in full-time pastoral ministry, I've never once, never, never once had anyone ever tell me that they feel over-encouraged. Never. Like someone encourages you, like come up and, hey, you know, I just want to give you some encouragement. You're like, nah, I'm good today. I'm good Nah, not today. Maybe tomorrow, right? No, life is hard, right? We'll have all sorts of stuff coming at us. All sorts of stuff coming against us, which means we need Barnabas among us. You know, we aren't told specifically in the text. But let's understand that this church here would have been so much different than the church in Jerusalem. Because this is a much, much different context in a much, much different culture. They would have dressed differently, maybe had a different vibe with their music, right? The food is different. The language is different, right? Barnabas could have come in and tried to set them straight. Like, hey, wait a second. What's going on here? Like, let me tell you about what's happening in Jerusalem, right? The church, right? This is what we're about. This is what we do. This is how we sing. This is how we dress. This is how we do ministry. This is how we reach kids. This is how we reach our neighbors. Look like us, but he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he comes in, sees people responding to the gospel, and he encourages them. And oh God, may that be our spirit here. He sees God at work. He doesn't criticize, he just prays God. And says, keep going, keep being faithful, don't lose your purpose. Again, he is demonstrating to them gospel culture through his encouragement while he's also teaching them. And we see that more clearly in verse 25 through 26. It says there, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, there it is again, they were first called Christians. So we see a bit more of Barnabas' character here in this text. In humility, he looks at the need of this church, getting to know the people, sort of, again, scouting things out. He's amongst them. He sees this need. He sees that they need to be more fu- firmly rooted in sound doctrine. And so what does he do? This is so humbling to me, right? It's is so humbling to me. He doesn't choose, notice, he doesn't choose to just take center stage himself. He doesn't choose to become the superstar at Antioch. He could have done that. He had the authority to do that, by the way. No, instead, instead, he finds Paul or Saul. And later, he actually, he actually allows Paul to take the primary leadership role of this group of people. And notice as well that Barnabas and Paul commit themselves to teaching these people for an entire year. They are likely meeting together regularly, maybe even daily And they're just instructing the people on the teachings and the works of Jesus Christ. They're encouraging others to do what they are doing for them. And so, for us here at FEC, this certainly underlines us, or for us, the importance of Christ-centered teaching. Look, there's no substitute for biblical teaching if you truly want to grow in your faith. There's no substitute for it. So we should prioritize that. We should prize that, I think we do, but we still need to keep going. God builds his church by his word. So take note, again, in this church, we have encouragement and we have care. But that encouragement and that care is coupled with sound teaching. You don't separate the two. And then the last aspect we see here of this discipleship is that there is actually fruit, there's fruit. And the fruit is evident by the fact that these disciples are actually called Christians. Now, we talked about this a few minutes ago, but it's just so remarkable. These outsiders, non-Jews, are the ones who are honored to be given this title for the very first time. It wasn't, notice, it wasn't a title that was given based on their background. This title of Christian was not given to them um, as a self-designation. It has nothing to do with their race. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. No, the world looked at these people and what they saw, they couldn't describe, but what they saw was a new humanity. This gathering in Antioch was showing the world something radically different. Their lives actually matched their words and their beliefs, if you could believe that. They they were truly living out their faith. They were truly living like Jesus. Jesus. They were living changed lives, and as a result, they are literally flipping the world upside down. These little Christs, Christians. What a wonderful model for us. The way that they evangelized, the way that they discipled by sharing and showing their faith. But also, this church in Antioch was marked by their commitment to showing mercy, and that's number three for us today, our third mark or our third ingredient, if you will. Effective evangelism, dynamic discipleship, and number three, mercy ministry, mercy ministry. I love, and we're going to see this in just a second, but I love how when there was a clear physical, not spiritual, but how when there was a clear physical need in the world, this is a church that doesn't sell. say, well, hey, I know there's physical needs, but here, here at Antioch, we're a Bible teaching church. We don't get into all that social stuff. Listen, we don't have to choose, okay? We we don't need to decide if we're going to be a gathering with strong Bible teaching or be a gathering that that strives to make a difference locally through our acts of service and mercy. We can say yes to both, and we should say yes to both. And Antioch was a great example of this. So look what happened. Our text says that the prophets have come down from Jerusalem, and there is one prophet— a man named Agabus, who makes quite an astonishing prediction. Starting in verse 28, he predicts, he declares, prophesies that there was going to be a great famine over the known world throughout Rome and the known world. And that actually happens. We know that, not just because the Bible tells us, by the way, but because historians tell us this as well. Historians tell us that There was a great famine that happened after uh, the result of the flooding of the Nile River in 45 AD. Okay, So the Nile River uh, overflows. There's this huge flood. It wipes out all the wheat, all the grain, and now there's a famine throughout the land. So Agabus, before that took place, Agabus hears from the Lord, declares this truth. This is going to happen makes this amazing prediction. But what's even more amazing to me is how this group of believers in Antioch responds to this message, how they handled it. Listen, these people are gonna be personally affected by this great famine, but we're gonna see that they respond with selflessness. It's remarkable. How many of you here, it's probably a decent majority of us, but some of you are gonna make me feel old because you have no idea what I'm talking about. How many of you are old enough to remember Y2K? Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, some of you are like oh, I have no, you're asking your neighbor and that's not a good thing for me. Okay? Uh, if you don't know what Y2K what Y2K was or is uh, back in 1999. Yeah, some of you are like born <laughs> back in 1999, some of you were born, okay? But you remember back in 1999, if you were there back then, uh, people all over the place were stocking up on canned green beans and corn, right? Because there was this belief that the world as we knew it was going to end when the calendar struck the year 2000, because none of the computers and electricity systems could handle it, right? There was, I'm not kidding, there was seriously, there was a guy in my, I grew up in a very small village called Illion, the village of Ilion, like 7,000 people, three stoplights, whatever. There was a guy, very wealthy in our, in our neighborhood, had owned all this land. He literally had like forklifts come and dig up. He was like burying like metal t- like, tubes of like food for like 10 years. It's crazy, right? I remember this. And I remember in 1999, we had the New Year's Eve service at our church even. I remember going there. And like, you know, you're trusting God. Everyone, of course, right? But at the same time, everyone's counting down and waiting. Like, is this it? You know? So, yeah, we have faith, and everyone's like, you know, holding on. I was like, holding on to my mom. Like, please, you know, this is it, right? You remember that? Anyone? It was crazy. It was crazy. What was happening at that time, though, all over the place is people were primarily looking out for themselves, concerned about themselves, thinking about themselves. But here, this church knows a great famine is going to be happening all over the world. And instead of store up things for themselves, instead of like stockpiling their savings and their food to make sure that their needs and their community was taken care of, this church says, hey, the people over in Judea are going to be hurting more than us. So according to what we have, as much as we are able, let's give to them and let's meet their needs first. That's what they do. They say, let's give, let's serve. It's beautiful, isn't it? They are selfless, they're generous. And then we see it's a collective effort in a time of need. And if you and I, if we here in this gathering want to see real impact in our community, in our city, this is who we need to be as well. We we can't just talk to people about the truth. We can't just share the gospel. We need to show people the truth by how we love them and by how we we serve them. If we're going to truly impact our city, if we're going to truly impact our neighborhood here in in Hebongchon, we need to be engaged with the local needs of our city. We need to be willing to show mercy again and again and again. Number four. We also see Antioch had great impact because they had multicultural membership. I'm doing pretty good on those double letters, huh? (laughs) Multicultural membership. Now, when we leave chapter 11, we move into chapter 13, just one chapter later. We learned there in verse 1 a little bit more specifically about the leadership and some of the dynamics of this church And we learn there in verse 1 about the leadership that was present in Antioch. We won't pull a verse on the screen, but if you pull up your Bible, you'll see there that five men are mentioned there, five leaders of this church. But what really stands out about them, as you study deeper, is how diverse the group is. We have Barnabas from Cyprus. We have... Simeon called Niger, which means dark, it's in reference to his skin. There, there is Lucian from North Africa. There's Mainin, who is from the royal line, he's from an upper class family. And then there is Saul, who is Paul, who we know is a Jewish believer. So this is quite a mix, isn't it? And I think if you were if you were there back then and you were to, to enter into that church, especially at this time. In this place, in this culture, this reality would have been striking to you. This diverse group of people, specifically Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Egyptians, Indians, and Asians, with a diverse set of leadership. And while we're certainly here, here, while we're certainly not perfect, I think, I think I think God is my witness, we have made a lot of strides as a gathering to become like this as well. Because we want Freedom Village to be a representation of our neighborhood. We want it to be a representation of our city, and of course, of the kingdom of God, which is diverse. And let me be really, really clear about this, because some of you um, particularly you know, heard that word diverse, we want to be diverse, and you, because that's kind of a cringe word lately. Let me be really clear about this. Here, here in this place, we're not about diversity for diversity's sake. This is not about meeting a quota. Like, oh, we got that race covered, and we have a ticker box in the back. No, not at all. This is about the mission. It's about the mission. You see, I believe this diversity in Antioch had two primary purposes. Two. There was an attractional dimension to it, but there's also a missional dimension to it. It had an attractional dimension in this, that if you were an outsider, if you didn't belong to this group of people, regardless of where you came from, who you were, what your background is, you would go into that place, into that church, and as you would enter into it, you could see yourself joining it. (laughs) People looked like you. There was representation there, because it wasn't just made up of one subset or one culture. You could see diversity present amongst the people. So there's an attractional aspect to this. But also, there was a missional dimension to this, in that this church had the unique ability, which is why they reach the nations, really, but they had the unique ability to reach a very broad and wide audience. see... We tend to reach people, for good and for bad, we tend to reach people that we most engage with, or that we most relate to, or that we most even look like. That's just the reality. And with this church full of people from the nations, they had the ability to relate to the nations, which is why the concept of worldwide missions was actually born out of this church. It was born in this gathering, Global Missions. This was the first, by the way, this is really the reason I believe that the Lord led me to this church and to this message today, because this was the first truly international church, which is what we are. And in that, this international church reflected God's heart for the nations. And of course, we want to see that here in Seoul as well. We want this gathering We want this church here on earth to reflect the church in heaven. That's our goal, to be a church that's full of people from the nations with a vision to send people into our city and to send people into the nations, back into the nations. Amen? Which leads right into our last point for today. What led this church to experience the grace of God in such a mighty way? The fifth ingredient, there was spirit-led sending and supporting. Spirit-led sending and supporting. A lot of S's there. Spirit-led sending and supporting. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We know that right after this, Paul's first of several missionary journeys begin. He had three or four, there's debate about that. But all of those missionary journeys that are infamous, right? Him writing these letters to the churches, like half the New Testament, it all originates right here in this moment in Acts chapter 13. And notice it starts. How does it start? It starts with worship. It starts with fasting. It starts with praying. That's what fueled the mission. And for me, that's enough of an argument for us to focus on worship, to focus on prayer, yeah? So while the church is worshiping, they're they're together, they're singing the praises of their great king, They're, they're fasting together, they're praying together, seeking the Lord together, what happens? The Holy Spirit intervenes, speaks to them, And then, and then, the church collectively confirms the Spirit's word. See that? Don't miss that. God speaks, go, and the congregation affirms the going. Both of those components are part of the sending out here. The Spirit calls, and the local church agrees. It's a wonderful picture for us of how missions is supposed to work. I believe it's how it's supposed to work every single time. We need to aim to imitate this and model this example. Now, I was thinking about this, again, uh, deeply in my time away this summer, that, that by God's grace, we would have more people from within FVC who are raised up and say, I feel like the Spirit of God is leading me and my family to the nations for the sake of the gospel. Right here, I, I couldn't help, but even today, as the kids were, were being dismissed and you were fellowshipping, I'll, I'll say hi to you later, okay? But I went to the back and, and went to the, over there so I could just look at the, look at the kids. I, I missed all of our kids. We have so many kids in this gathering. And and I knew I was going to say this point here, and so I even quickly prayed over them. But I love for our kids. I'm praying that we would be a church to raise them up to be sent out. Parents, let me talk to you for a second, just a second. Is that even on the table for you? Is that a dream, maybe even, for you and your family over your children? Is that ever your prayer, that your kids would be sent out even as full-time missionaries to hard-to-reach places where the gospel is not yet known. Not praying, God, help them to get any good university, help them to get a good job, a doctor, a lawyer. No, no, no. I want them to be missionaries in hard-to-reach places where they could die for their faith, for your kingdom, for your glory. Is that your prayer ever? No wonder we're not seeing as many people sent to the nations because we're not praying for the nations We're not praying that our own would be sent out to the nations. What would it look like for us here in this little corner of soul? You know, we're not very known, but in this little corner of soul, to be a truly sending church, what it means is that we need to start raising people up from within. It means that we need to actually commit ourselves more to corporate prayer together. It means that you need to prioritize corporate prayer together if we want to see impact in our city. It's not just going to happen. We have to be devoted to this if we really want it. It means we need to be more sensitive to the Spirit's calling, more sensitive to the Spirit's leading. So let's strive towards this. Let's be a church family that supports and sends and affirms mission. This is what's required to see true gospel impact. I truly believe it. I believe this is how we can reach our neighborhood, our city. Even an international church in the midst of a a city that is 98% Korean, we can be a part of this. We see them here in Antioch. Evangelism, discipleship, a heart of mercy, this multicultural people, a sensitivity to the Spirit's direction. That should be our aim. It needs to be part of our vision. It needs to be part of our identity. We need to remind ourselves of it. I'm going to do my best to remind you of it. But listen, this is what we can do but there's one more necessary component to having impact. To making a real difference that I left out on purpose. And I'll end here with this. This was the, let's call it the secret sauce, if you will, to Antioch's influence. The secret sauce to Antioch's influence. It's Acts chapter 11, verse 21. Here are these striking words. Listen to this. Simple. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on them. This is what we need to have. And we need to pray diligently for this. You know, there was a time when Israel was in captivity. They were away from Jerusalem, their promised land, and they had no temple to go to to worship. During that time, there was a man named Nehemiah, a Jew, who was serving the king of Persia. He was actually serving as the king's cupbearer. And one day, when Nehemiah approached the king to give him his wine, the king asked him a really simple question, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? See, the king had never seen that look on Nehemiah's face before. Nehemiah had always hidden it, but today he went into the king with boldness. And Nehemiah said this, Because my city is in ruin, and there is no one to rebuild the walls. Well, at that, the king asks him back, So what do you want? And the Bible says there that Nehemiah prays and says to the king, I want to go back to Jerusalem and restore the temple of my people. And what happens? The king, we're told, grants him permission. It's incredible mercy by a foreign pagan king. It's incredible grace. But why does it happen? Why does that take place? Is it because the wine was really good that day? Maybe he was a little tipsy? Sure, go back to Jerusalem, right? Was it because the king was just? Was it because the king was kind? No. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, tells us the key. Nehemiah says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. That's the difference. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, over God's servants, over God's people. The scriptures tell us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So let me ask you today are you asking for God's hand to be on your life? When was the last time that you asked for the Lord's hand to be on this church? Listen, it's great to have a nice website it's really nice to have a cool mission strategy, some cool phrases on a wall and some banners. But you and I don't have jack squat. We have nothing if we don't have God's hand upon us. So here's the simple message today. Let's be obedient to do our part. Let's be faithful to go out and to witness about the good news of Jesus. Let's be purposeful and intentional in, in the way that we go about making disciples. Let's, let's commit ourselves to showing people the gospel. Let's also love and serve our city. I need to be better at that. I need to be modeling that better. Let's, let's go out and meet the needs of our city. Let's strive to be diverse so that anyone from Anywhere can come here into this gathering and feel welcome. Again, not for diversity's sake, but for the kingdom of God's sake. Let's be more open to the Spirit. Let's let's call on Him and ask Him to send people out to the nations. And let's be fervent in prayer. Let's worship with glad and sincere hearts. Let's worship Him with passion. Let's fast with a heart of dependence. Let's seek the Lord with purpose. Let's seek Him with urgency begging his hand to be on us and on our ministry here in Seoul so that through us, Christ may be magnified and so that we would see God add to our number those who are being saved, amen? Freedom Village family, may God grant us grace together in this season and may God's hand be on us always. Let's pray together. I'll ask the the worship team, the praise team to come join me again back on the stage. And as they make their way up uh, in the quietness of this moment, I just want to give us an opportunity to respond uh, to the Lord's leading and his calling today. First and foremost, I just want us to spend a moment uh, praying for the hand of the Lord to be on us. As individuals, yes, but also to be on this church. I'd be so grateful, so thankful if you could pray for us here. Even if you don't call this church home, maybe you're just visiting for the first time, you call home somewhere else, another country, even. Would you pray for us here that God's hand would be upon us and that God would grant us grace? Can we pray right now?